You are listening to Kevin Bennett is Snarling. The town of Rayford is a small community with no more than a couple hundred residents. Located about 30 miles outside of Jacksonville in north central Florida, the city is home to the Florida State Prison, the same prison where serial killer Ted Bundy was executed in 1989. Five years earlier, in 1984, Robert Keppel and Dave Reichert, investigators working on the Green River serial killer case in Washington State, walked into the prison to sit down with Bundy. The body looks like it's linked to the other four, and one was found on the bank and the other five, but the other four and the other, I say, good chance he's got a surprise. And, and bolted. I can't imagine why he even thrown all the way in unless... Because this guy obviously thought that dumping bodies in rivers was a good way to get rid of bodies. And sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't. Anybody who looked at searching for people who fall in the river on rafting accidents knows that oftentimes bodies just disappear in the river on the right condition. At this point in the Green River case, despite dozens of bodies turning up, the investigators still did not have any reliable leads. Around this time, Bundy, who had been following the case while sitting on death row, reached out to Keppel to offer help. Bundy speculated that the killer might be going back to perform sexual acts on the bodies he left behind. But, um, you know, I think he found out the hard way that they didn't. Uh, a body on the riverbank would say to me, uh, he could say he was surprised by someone. He could also say he wanted to come back and, and, and see that victim again. Bizarre, I know, but... Uh, in this episode, we dive into the disturbing world of serial killers by exploring some of the myths and mistakes we keep propagating about who these people are and how they came to be. From Jack the Ripper to John Wayne Gacy to current unknown murderers, we've learned a great deal about the psychology of serial killers, but we still keep asking, why? Kevin Bennett is snarling begins now. The Doodler, one of San Francisco's most well-known cold case murderers, is back in the news. San Francisco police recently announced a possible victim number six. The Doodler's M.O., or modus operandi, is consistent and appalling. In the mid-1970s, he targeted gay men by posing as a cartoonist who would draw sketches of his victims before a sexual encounter, followed up quickly by attacking and murdering them. Bodies were often dropped on area beaches and in local parks, producing concern and panic among Bay Area residents. Although he has not been caught, police feel they are getting closer to solving the case. This story is fascinating in part because it looks like the killer does not fit the stereotypical portrait of the American serial murderer that emerged in the 1970s and 1980s. Think Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, Jeffrey Dahmer, etc., over the years, we have learned more about serial killers and their psychology. 
In this episode, we will have an honest and data-driven discussion about serial killers in modern-day America. And you may come to the conclusion that what you know about serial killers may be wrong. Number one, serial killer IQ is related to the murder method. Data from the Radford University, Florida Gulf Coast University Serial Killer Database, a collection of thousands of serial homicides, shows that the highest average IQ scores belong to killers in the bomb category. Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, held a PhD in mathematics and worked as a professor at University of California, Berkeley, before he removed himself from the grid and moved to a small cabin in remote Montana. Murderers of average intelligence favor poisoning, while strangulation, stabbing, and shooting are the preferred methods for those with slightly below average intelligence. The lowest IQ scores are correlated with bludgeoning. Let's talk about the Unabomber for a moment. Ted Kaczynski pleaded guilty to setting 16 explosions that killed three people and injured 23 others across the United States between 1978 and 1995. In April 1996, authorities found Ted Kaczynski outside Lincoln, Montana, in a very primitive 10 by 14 foot cabin. He had been living there since the 1970s, and it showed. The rustic hut was filled with explosive ingredients and two completed bombs, journals, and a coded diary. From there, he railed against the effects of technology and eventually led authorities on the nation's longest and costliest manhunt. He was given the moniker the Unabomber by the FBI because universities and airlines were among his early targets. In September 1995, the Washington Post and the New York Times agreed to publish his anti-technology manifesto, Industrial Society and Its Future. The manifesto was printed at the urging of federal authorities after the bomber said he would desist from terrorism if a national publication published his treatise. The treatise led his brother David and David's wife, Linda Patrick, to recognize his writing and turn him into the FBI. Let me just jump in here real quick with a comment. I cannot imagine what it would feel like if you discovered that someone close to you was a serial killer. If you had undeniable proof that your loved one or your romantic partner, your family member, your close friend was actually a serial killer, what would you do? Would you turn that person in? Would you try to protect them for some reason? Uh, but that's exactly what Ted Kaczynski's brother David and his wife were, were dealing with. They had to struggle with this reality that their brother was a serial killer. And they decided to do the right thing and, and turn him in, fortunately. And that will be a topic for a future episode. We will look at family members of serial killers and how they deal with the reality. In some of those cases, they were instrumental in turning that person in, leading to their eventual incarceration. Kaczynski hated the idea of being viewed as mentally ill, and during his trial, tried to fire his attorneys when they wanted to mount an insanity defense. He eventually pleaded guilty rather than let his attorneys proceed. The Unabomber killed computer rental store owner Hugh Scrutton, advertising executive Thomas Mosser, and timber industry lobbyist Gilbert Murray. California geneticist Charles Epstein and Yale University computer expert David Galertner 
were maimed by bombs two days apart in June 1993. In his personal journals, released at trial by the government at the request of victims' families, Kaczynski described his motive as simply personal revenge. I often had fantasies of killing the kind of people I hated, i.e. government officials, police, computer scientists, the rowdy type of college students who left their beer cans in the arboretum, etc., 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 he wrote. He has a laser pointer in one hand and a double shot of espresso in the other. This can only mean one thing. You are listening to Kevin Bennett is Snarling. Number two, there's no such thing as a serial killer prototype. Many people would like to believe there is a prototypical personality profile for serial murderers, but, just like so many other features of human psychology, there are variations in personality and nuances in behavior that violate our assumptions all the time. It would be a lot easier to apprehend perpetrators if we could just crack the secret code, but a one-size-fits-all formula simply does not exist. Number three, not all serial killers are insane psychopaths. Insanity is a legal term. Only two to four percent of serial killers are legally insane. Generally speaking, pleading insanity is a risky defense in court because a defendant must demonstrate that they were unaware of their actions at the time of the murders and incapable of understanding the difference between right and wrong. Most serial killers are keenly aware of what they are doing. They know it is wrong, but they do it anyhow. Number four, most serial killers are not highly mobile. While it is true that several high-profile serial killers are famous for traveling across the country in search of victims, most hunt in a small geographic comfort zone close to home or work. Ted Bundy had known victims in Washington, Colorado, Utah, and Florida, but this is extremely rare even for serial killers. Almost as rare as traveling serial killers are place killers. These individuals, like America's first serial killer, H.H. H. Holmes, who killed his victims after they checked into his bizarrely constructed hotel near the 1893 Chicago World's Fair, tend to kill people in a single building, like a home, hospital, or hotel. Let's talk about H.H. Holmes for a moment. In 1886, Herman Webster Mudgett moved to Chicago and took a job as a pharmacist under the name Dr. H.H. Holmes. Soon afterward, he apparently began killing people in order to steal their property. The house he built for himself, which would become known as Murder Castle, was supposedly equipped with secret passages, trap doors, and soundproof rooms, as well as doors that could be locked from the outside, gas jets to asphyxiate victims, and a kiln to cremate the bodies. At the reputed peak of his career during the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago in 1893, that's the World's Fair, 
Uh, he allegedly seduced and murdered a number of women, typically by becoming engaged to them and then killing them after securing control of their life savings. Mudgett also required his employees to carry life insurance policies, naming him as beneficiary so that he could collect money after he killed them. He sold the bodies of many of his victims to local medical schools. In 1893, Mudgett was arrested for insurance fraud after a fire at his home, but he was soon released. He then concocted a scheme with an associate, Ben Pitetzel, to defraud an insurance company by faking Pitetzel's death. After Pitetzel purchased a $10,000 life insurance policy, he and Mudgett traveled to Colorado, Missouri, New York, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, and Texas, where they committed other acts of fraud. Along the way, Mudgett also got married. Returning to Missouri, Mudgett was arrested for fraud and briefly jailed in St. Louis. While in jail, he met Marion Hedgepeth, a career criminal who agreed to help Mudgett in the insurance scheme with Pitetzel. Meanwhile, Pitetzel moved to Philadelphia and opened a fake patent office to swindle inventors. After his release from jail, Mudgett traveled to Philadelphia and killed Pitetzel. He then convinced Pitetzel's widow, who had been aware of her husband's involvement in the insurance scheme, that her husband was still alive, later giving her $500 of the money he collected. Worried that some of Patetzel's five children might alert the authorities, Mudgett killed three of them. Insurance investigators were alerted to the fraud by Hedgepeth, and Mudgett was arrested in Boston, Massachusetts in 1894. He was tried in Philadelphia for the murder of Patetzel and was sentenced to death by hanging. Mudgett ultimately confessed to 27 murders. He later increased the total to more than 130 though some researchers have suggested that the real number exceeded 200. Mudgett sold his story to the Hearst Corporation for $10,000. Let me jump in here with a quick book recommendation. If you are interested in H.H. Holmes as America's first serial killer, as he's been labeled, and you're interested in history, then the book for you is Devil in the White City by Eric Larson, who is the master of narrative nonfiction. That's currently my favorite genre. If you're interested in the, the history of H.H. H. Holmes and how he came to Chicago and ultimately built his murder castle, and you're also interested in how the uh, World's Fair of 1893 came to be, and there's really an interesting history there, and so many important uh, inventions and ideas were, were brought to that uh, gathering. Uh, it's just a great book, Devil in the White City. Number five. Not all serial killers are lust killers. Lust killers practice erotophonophilia, a homicide in which the offender searches for sexual satisfaction by killing someone. The perpetrator gains sexual arousal or gratification from the death of a human being. Many infamous killers fit into this category, including Ted Bundy, Ed Kemper, Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer, and Dennis Rader, the BTK or Bind Torture Kill, murderer. This is dark, disturbing, and fascinating for sure, but there are other categories of serial homicide. Offenders can be motivated by the need for power and control, or the need to carry out a mission connected with some philosophical, political, or religious platform. Those who are known to have had psychotic breaks with reality may be driven to kill by violent hallucinations such as murderous voices.
Are you an overanalyzer looking for a show that speaks to you? Do you wonder why you often wonder about so many things that others find insignificant? Do you get frustrated when you evaluate your own life and can't decide if you should move forward, stay put, or cling to the past? For a few minutes every week, this is the perfect home for you, where we talk about what it means to belong and not belong. You are listening to Kevin Bennett is Snarling. Number six, many serial killers kill alone, but not all. About one in four serial killers have one or more killing partners. For example, Carla Homolka is a Canadian serial killer who, along with her husband, Paul Bernardo, raped and murdered at least three minors in Ontario between 1990 and 1992, including Carla's own sister. In the early 1990s, Carla Homolka and Paul Bernardo committed multiple crimes against teenage girls in Ontario, Canada. The sexual assault and murder of three teens made them one of the most notorious couples in Canadian history. Because of their middle-class lifestyles, Homolka was a veterinary technician and Bernardo was an accountant, and their classy good looks, the press dubbed them the Ken and Barbie killers after law enforcement tied them to the crimes. However, Long before Bernardo attacked teenage girls with the help of Homolka, he had acted alone, committing a series of sexual assaults all over the city of Scarborough. When biological evidence found on one of the teenagers the couple attacked together matched semen collected from one of the victims of the Scarborough rapist, investigators closed in on Bernardo and discovered the secrets he and his wife had been hiding. In July of 1990, 21-year-old Carla Homolka, with the help of her boyfriend, 26-year-old Paul Bernardo, drugged her younger sister, Tammy. Homolka served her 15-year-old sister a meal of spaghetti laced with Valium, which she had stolen from the veterinarian's office where she worked as a vet tech. Bernardo then briefly violated the teen but stopped when she quickly regained consciousness. Several months later, on December 23, 1990, the couple again drugged Tammy who was unaware of the prior assault, using eggnog spiked with halcyon. Reportedly, both Bernardo and Homolka sexually assaulted Tammy while she was under its effects. The couple hatched their plan months earlier when Bernardo became obsessed with his girlfriend's little sister. Number seven, serial killers have dozens of victims. Some do, but most kill fewer than eight victims. In fact, the number of victims per serial killer has dropped dramatically over the past 70 years. In 1950, 38% of all serial killers had five or more victims. Today, the percentage of serial killers who have more than five victims is down to 13%. There are many reasons for this, for example, Better investigative techniques, DNA, video surveillance, communication between jurisdictions, etc. And these all contribute to the apprehension of these individuals before they can amass obscene body counts.
To all the chronic overanalyzers out there, the feeling is real. Everything is dangerous, tomorrow is scary, and you don't belong here. Ugh, now what? Don't get mad, get untangled. In this super chill audio experience, we will show you how stories of chaos and change are best understood through the lens of psychological belonging. Each episode focuses on a gripping aspect of danger, deception, and desire, and reveals the power these forces have to shape who we are, for better or worse. You are listening to Kevin Bennett is Snarling. Number eight, most serial murderers kill for the same reasons. When serial offenders are finally incarcerated and interviewed, more than 60% report that they were motivated simply by enjoyment, financial gain, or some combination of the two. These prisoners will often give a variation of the very unsatisfying answer, I just wanted to do it because it seemed like fun. Other motivations identified in the study were anger, avoiding arrest, cult pressure, and attention-seeking. Number nine, males and females are equally likely to be victims. About 49% of serial killer victims are male and 51% are female. Some serial killers target one gender exclusively, while others, like Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, seem to kill randomly. His victim list included males, females, young people, old people, and various races and ethnicities. It seems no one was spared. Let me just jump in with a quick comment. You know, of all the serial killers that that I've studied and that I'm aware of, I think Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, is one of the scariest because he seemed to attack randomly and he would invade homes in the night when people are sleeping. So it seemed like no one was safe. Uh, You know, with certain serial killers, it seems like you can avoid them if you're not their type. Maybe you're male and they only kill females or vice versa, or maybe they only attack certain occupations and you know you're not that occupation, so you feel relatively safe. But with Ramirez, I think anyone could be attacked and and everyone felt very unsafe if you were in that geographic area of where where he was doing most of his killing. Number 10. Two-thirds of victims are white, but black victims are overrepresented. The victims of serial killers seem to track closely the U.S. Census population, except when it comes to black victims. While whites make up 62% of the population and 67% of victims, black Americans, who represent 13% of the population, comprise 24% of all serial killer victims. Number 11, more than half of all serial killer victims are under the age of 30. Only 11% of victims are older than 60 years. This could reflect the fact that many serial killers pursue victims close to their own age. Number 12, serial murder varies by geography. Washington, D.C. has historically had the most serial killings per capita. U.S. states at the top of the list with five to six serial killings per 100,000 residents include Louisiana, Alaska, and Indiana. 
Number 13. Serial killers are not all white and male. In recent years, the majority of serial killers have been black. Nearly 17% are female. Serial killers vary in race, ethnicity, religion, nationality, age, gender, socioeconomic status, IQ, and education. Number 14. The serial killer peak was in the 1980s. Some researchers dubbed the period between 1970 and 2000 the golden age of serial killing. This title may be a little too cheery for many, but it does illustrate the whopping difference between this era compared to the ones before and after. There were more serial killings during this stretch of time than at any other point in American history. This podcast was recorded and edited by Kevin Bennett in the beautiful foothills of Western Pennsylvania. Executive producer, Anne Hedonia. Artwork by Carvin Barnett. You can find Kevin on Twitter at KevinBennettPhD. For email, Facebook, and other contact info, head over to Kevin-Bennett.com. That's Kevin Bennett with a dash in between. If you are interested in more stories about psychology, science, and pop culture, check out my writing over at Psychology Today. Just type Kevin Bennett Psychology Today into your favorite search engine. As always, thank you for listening and please remember to be good. I said, be good. See you next time.